I don't feel any different from the way I think I felt when I was 21. And I think if, if there's any change that's needed in this country, it's attitudinal change. Attitudinal change. Go roll your sleeves up, get out there, lose some sweat and be independent. Stop putting your hand in someone else's pocket. And I think if we had that attitudinal change, we don't have any problems at all. Alan Jones is my guest today. Welcome, my Alan. Alan grew up in Ackland on the Darling Downs and was educated at Toowoomba Grammar. He studied at the University of Queensland, Worcester College, Oxford, and began his career in teaching. Check me if I get any of these wrong, please. Oh. But after failing to win pre-selection for the country party in 1975, you managed a small airline in Quirindai, is that? Quirindai, yeah, just Quirindai. up there. The, the, the pre-selection was very interesting. I was just, by accident, working for Doug Anthony, and um, because I'd known his family and I'd taught the children at the King School, and suddenly they were, there was the double dissolution election, oh, yeah. and they had no candidates for Eden Monero. So he came to me and said, you've got to stand. And I mean, I wasn't even a member, so I became a member, and everyone thought this was fantastic, and I went into pre-selection, I lost. I lost some biker's name I can't remember. Beat me. So there we are. That was happened. That was 75, I think. Well, if I was scripting your, your biopic, Alan, the, your time in Kieran Dye is a bit, I think I'd want to turn into your apprenticeship Well, no, what happened was when you come, you see, as you know, when you come back from uh, Oxford University, you have their exams, you know, May, you finished. Mm. And I didn't have a job when I came back. And this was a family whose son I had coached in rugby. And he was a very eminent doctor in the bush. And there were no, there were no airlines connecting that apart, Maury, Corindai, that area to Sydney. So he had started his own airline. He, he bought the planes and said, come on, you come in. You knew nothing about it. You come in here and run the thing, which was a sort of a, a stopgap measure for mm. me, for which I was grateful. Mm. And you coached the local rugby team, I read? I coached the local rugby team and on a ground that had no lights. So I encouraged them all to drive a car and we turned the lights on and the training session was lit by the lights from the car. And uh, I also read that you'd, uh, this is where you got your break in journalism with the Kirindai Advocate. Advocate. Yeah. I used to write a column there about, I don't know what I wrote about, but I, I wrote a column all for free, you know, and then I did something for the Tamworth paper as well. Mm. Well, look, um, I'll just go to the next stage of your life. In, in 84, you replaced Bob Dwyer as coach of the Wallabies. Uh, during four years as coach, you knocked up 86 victories in 122 matches. That's correct. Mm. Including third, 23 out of 30 tests and the first Australian Bledisloe Cup victory for 39 years. That's true. We won the Grand Slam. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it had always been a, a passion of mine. I mean, I got into trouble at school with the rugby coach when I had an argument with him <laughs> and, and he said who's coaching the side and I said well if I was I think it would be winning so he sent me <laughs> sent me off the paddock which made me happy because I got a hot shower but um, so that was a I just coached Manly before that and we won the premiership for the first time I think in 39 years and so they said look you should be coaching Australia and it was a bit of a knock them down drag them out affair because the votes from Queensland and, and New South Wales were often divided but they all uh, amalgamated to support me and away I went. Often, you know, when I've listened to you talking to politicians on air, often people that I know that you, you, you hold in high personal regard sometimes and yet you never give them an easy time. And I kind of imagined you in that role of coach. It's almost as if you're coaching them. It's almost as saying, yeah, okay, you know, I mean... Well, we sort of, uh, that's right. Look, I, I think that 
you know, you must aim to be 100% flawless. You'll never get there, but that's what we aim to do. So we pioneered a whole heap of skills so that basically in our training sessions, we were replicating everything that I thought might happen on the paddock in a match so that when they got onto the paddock to play, they wouldn't be meeting any circumstance which was unfamiliar. Mm. Now, the best example of that, of course, is that when people are often, you, you, you throw bad passes and there's a tendency to, like to throw his head in the air and say, it's your fault, you know, you threw the ball too far in front of me. And we had a skill, and forgive the language, but it was called no SHIT passes. So in other words, we didn't allow that argument to exist that the pass was bad. You had to make the bad pass into a good pass. So we, had, we, we trained relentlessly at all of that, and we did everything at speed mm. so that we were doing speed work at the same time as we were doing ball work. I remember we arrived in New Zealand, and because it was the big that no one had beaten at won a series against New Zealand in New Zealand in 1986. And I said to the boys, we got there first day, look, let's train the day we arrive. That'll frighten the hell out of these people because normally the day you arrive, you go to the hotel, sit around. So, so I said, yes, we train that. Looked as... And I'll never forget Graham Thorne, with whom I communicate now, Graham Thorne, who was a magnificent all-black centre and subsequently became a politician in for the National Party and so on. He was then a journalist. So I said, listen, we're just going to do the boys, we're just going to do some of these skills at 100 miles an hour. This mob won't know what's going on, see? So we did it, which was beautiful stuff. They were brilliant. All the skills, no scrums, no line-outs, just skills work. I did this about three quarters an hour, and I said, right, away you go. And when we got up to the press conferences, press everywhere, and Graham Thorne, I remember, was the first person. He said, what was that supposed to be? I said, well, Graham, that's a training session designed to wipe you mob out. And that became <laughs> the story the story of the week, and we did wipe them out. <laughs> so there is a parallel with, with politics. In politics, yes. you've got to be at the top of your game. Absolutely. I mean, it's like rugby, isn't it? Coming second is to come in last. That's dead right. And, you know, I mean, Malcolm Fraser was very good at that. I mean, Malcolm... Uh, when I worked there, he said, Alan, all we have to do is to get 51% of these people to vote for us. If we can get Liberals to vote Liberal, we win. And, and that was really the strategy and everything. But again, if he said the inflation rate was 6.4 when it was 4.6, you had to correct him immediately because the 6.4 would be embedded straight away. Now, that, does, that sort of discipline doesn't exist here. Like we had five staff... Yeah. I mean, there were f there were five of us, and one of them was Rosie, Professor John Rose, who only came up. He was the professor of economics at Melbourne University. He just came up when he was needed. So basically, there's Jack Hammond, John Wilson, and I, and and um, yeah, Kathy, Kathy Queeley. There's five of us did the whole dig, and there was question time and everything, and we'd sit up the back in question time or in a pre question time meeting. We'd have it in the prime minister's office, and he'd have he'd sit over there having a bit of lunch. His great big hands. And he'd grab an orange and he'd peel it, put it all in his mouth at once. And the, the, but the bureaucrats would sit down here advising him. Why? Why were they there? And why were Rosie and I at the back? Because we did a... Or a yeah. As they were advising him as to how to answer the questions at question time. And I remember a significant day when there was a real problem about, you know, because we had this policy of parity pricing for oil, and the OECD would jack up the price of oil. Now, if, if we left our price below the OECD price, we'd run out of mm. our own oil mm. resources. So we had to sort of jack it up. Well, between the time we had last, the parliament had last sat, and now, question time in an hour's time, there had been two OECD increases in, in 
the price of oil. So what are we going to do? We knew that Bill Hayden would be into us about this yeah. because of the impact it has on the cost of living and so on. So Rosie and I are sitting out the back and they said, oh, I won't name the bureaucrat. Uh, Prime Minister, I just think, you know, it would be better if we do in, took it incrementally. So I think just pass on the first price now and the second one a couple of months later. And we're up the back coming like this, you see. <laughs> and straight away the PM said, well, that'll be it. That's it. Right, go. Senior is very pleasant to them. When they left the door, he said, what's wrong with you two? And really aggressively. And we said, we had a meeting yesterday, PM, about having an election, didn't we? Around about August. You mean to say you're going to pass on some of this now, and just as you're about to call an election, we'll have another one? You want pass to lose it. this one? That's it. You want to lose <laughs> this one? Pass it all on. Went straight into the House and said it'll be all on there. Well, of course, there's a bit of a headline, and a lot of pain was all over in two weeks. Yeah. So, you know, it's that's the kind of thing you meant to be doing. I don't want to dwell on that period. We've got a lot of contemporary things to talk about, but I will ask you one question. We're, we're, we're about to publish... Uh, a monograph by your former colleague Dennis White, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and he makes a very convincing case that that Malcolm Fraser has been rather badly treated by history. Mm -hmm. That if you take out the controversial manner in which he became mm -hmm. prime minister and what happened afterwards, when he had various disagreements, quite public disagreements with the party and 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 the leadership, he was actually in the middle of that a very competent prime minister for that time yes, he given was. what he inherited he was look the problem with him with malcolm was he never got over the fact that there was a perception of illegitimacy and so you'd be waiting to go into the office in that old parliament house and he'd be on the phone endlessly you'd then be called in and say pm what was that about and he would be talking to peter cook from western australia the, the labor council secretary he was constantly trying to build bridges there when in fact the decision had been taken, in a sense, I didn't support uh, the rejection of supply. I think if you've got the numbers in the lower house, then that's it, you should be governing. But against that, he had made this conscious decision and the Governor General supported it and so on. But that did affect his psychological approach towards a lot of things involving the Labor Party and the unions. But against that, I mean, in so many ways, he was quintessentially Australian. He was very dedicated to the best interests of Australia. And, of course, here we are dealing now with the Taliban in Afghanistan. I mean, it was the time the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and, and Jimmy Carter was the president. And he rang Malcolm Fraser and he wanted to be the emissary for the West. So we all headed off to the White House and we went from there to Margaret was uh, Thatcher was the prime minister. Uh, we went to Helmut Schmidt and Giscard d'Estaing and we had to gather all the intelligence from all of those and then report back to President Carter as to how we should respond to the Russian invasion. I mean, here they are now. They still haven't beaten the Taliban. No. You know, Still trying to work it out. Still trying to work it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to take you back almost five years, I think, when, when I came up with this crazy idea to recreate Menzies Forgotten People mm. radio talk on the 75th anniversary mm. at the very moment he did it, 9.15, 22nd of May, 1942, and once again broadcast it live on the Macquarie Radio Network, because yeah. the original was, and, and uh, people thought I was nuts. But I came to you and you made it happen. It most probably wasn't the Macquarie Radio Network. It was the, two, the old 2UE, which was the oldest radio yeah, station right, in Australia, yeah. and which subsequently became Macquarie. And yes, it was 2UE and, and it was just... BBC. Yes, yeah. Peter Cousins, a magnificent recitation of the speech with all the nuances and pauses and so on. But it was the language, wasn't it? I mean, in those... You've written about this in the chapter in, in, in the book, Australia Tomorrow, where you highlight the fact that, that those views and, and sentiments and philosophies of Menzies are still relevant today. I mean, the culture war business, I mean, we're in the middle of it now, up to our necks. 
Well, this is the point, you know, this whole central... I mean, I remember on that night, I went and stood at the back of the hall because I wanted... It was a long speech, and I thought, maybe I've sold 2UE a pup here or 2GB, and and that the people are going to get bored. But I couldn't see a single person look at their phone, uh, check what's coming up on the dessert no. menu, hmm. uh, whisper to their neighbour. Hmm. Uh, you know, they were focused on this because it was so relevant. And the simplicity of the language, you see, coming back to Fraser, and, and I was just saying to one of my, the young people who works for me, uh, yesterday, oddly enough, Malcolm Fraser would say, um, what's this word here? Nihilism, what's it mean? So he'd explain. Well, he said, well, that's what it means. Why did you say that instead of saying that? Yeah. And well, Menzies' language for the scholar was simple, and the message was easy to understand, and the philosophy was grounded. And we had a little bit of this, haven't we, this week, with Dominic Perrottet. And I mean, the, the thing that has impressed people about Perrottet, and we're getting it on social media, he stood up and he said he had, he had a philosophy, what he believed in, cut out red tape, cut out regulation, we want families to be happy, we want families to be in work, businesses to be working, and I've got to facilitate that. Freedom is, doesn't belong to me, I, it's not for me to confer. And people are thinking, God, at long last, someone can articulate what they believe in. And that's all they're talking about, Perrottet, right now. Now, of course, he's got the difficult job of delivering. And, and those were the philosophies articulated by Menzies. Yeah, that central idea of the forgotten people, like this group of people that he almost struggles to define, but we know who they are, the people that, that don't have a, a loud voice in the public square. You know, in today's terms, don't, don't spend all day on Twitter. You know, they're actually getting out there driving trucks, uh, you know, running, running businesses, opening shops, you know, those sort of people. Well, as you said in your essay, the forgotten people... Okay, I mean, if you're forgotten and I've forgotten, we most probably have the machinery to do something about it. But the real forgotten people today are the children who've been taken out of the classroom, homeschooling. Uh, many of them are single-parent families. They don't have the resources. They don't have the computer. Four kids, one computer for four kids, climbing up the wall, can't go anywhere. The house is not air-conditioned. These, The damage that's been done... Now, I was reading that ANU survey, uh, which is very recent, last month, where uh, it was a very significant survey, about 4,000 people, 71% of parents cited the fact that there had been a deterioration in the mental health of their children. Mm. And, and it's axiomatic that if you treat kids like this, that, that, you know, they want their friends, they want their school formal, they want to graduate, you know, they want to sleep over with, with their mate for a night and play games. None of that, that's all been stolen from them. And there's been no consideration by politicians of the consequence and the impact of this. And I guess we won't know until five or six or seven years down the track, but... No, we won't. No, these kids are significantly damaged, the forgotten people. The You know, I was talking to you on the show last night about swimming. You know, a four-year-old, uh, perhaps somebody like my granddaughter, suddenly stops swimming lessons, mm. having just... And, and doesn't pick them up for another year and a half, two mm. years. That, you know, that, kid, that child is going to struggle ever to pick up the skill of swimming, Quite. which is something best learned at a young age. Absolutely. Like most skills, best yeah. learned, like a language, best yeah. learned at a young age. Yeah. Quite. And so that's what we've done. Mm, For what? Damage, massive damage. These are the byproducts. I mean, the notion of, you know, save a life and kill a livelihood. Now, I think it was you who made that point and when you said that, okay, we do have to worry about the health and well-being of, course. of, of aged people, and we all do that. We're not Robin Hood about any of this sort of stuff. But at the same time, we don't sacrifice everything else for the purpose of achieving that goal. And we have sacrificed everything else. I mean, I've got people ringing me or writing to me in tears in, in their business. Like right now, for example, the, 
the differentiation between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So some poor little coot running a shop has got to sort of strong arm the unvaccinated because at law he's not allowed in. You can't do this to people. So they say, well, I'm not opening. I, I'm not opening my shop. I can't. I don't have the energy, the resources, or the commitment to be a policeman and differentiate between one and the other. You don't get any leadership in relation to this. It's left to the poor little beleaguered employer. And there are teachers... Teachers? ...losing their jobs, mm-hmm. doctors being... Well, they're now saying at the University of New South Wales and Sydney University starting from next Monday, only the vaccinated can come on campus. Now, firstly, how do you police it? I'd love to see that. And secondly, are we saying because you're not vaccinated, you can't be educated? I mean, or you can't work. I mean, these are very significant questions which belong to national leadership. Now, if you think that this is such a threat to the public health, coronavirus, then say, all right, this is such a significant threat to public health. I want everybody vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, you're going to be denied A, B, C, D and E. It's a legislative requirement. That's what you want to do. But until you do that, are we saying to people, well, you lose your job, you can't be educated? The confusion and anxiety is profound. Well, I mean, we're, we're telling a priest that he has to turn people yes. away at the door. Yes, that's correct. Because they're not vaccinated. Yes. I mean, don't the bureaucrats who draw up these things think for five minutes what that means? What that means about freedom of religion? Yes. About Well, I mean, the, the, British, the British Health Secretary has said, well, I've got SAGE, S-A-G-E, SAGE, my advisory group. They're, enti- they're independent. They're entitled to give their advice, but I'm entitled not to listen to it. And this is the point. You can go to church now, but you can't sing. Here right now, we've freedoms. We've got freedom today. You can go to the pub, but you've got to stand up. Or no, you've got to sit down. I'm not sure which it is. But you can, you can have a beer, but you've got to stand up or sit down. Which is it? I don't know. And I don't think... I mean, it's classic that half the people who implement these things don't know how they apply to themselves. Yeah. Well, look, you've been... A, I'll put it... not be kind about it, Alan. You've been around longer than I have. Yes. You, you, you were born in World War II. Mm, yeah. um, have you in your lifetime ever seen so much freedom taken away from people so quickly no well i haven't but i i i think that's even not the issue is it really the issue is the consequence of this and it's the consequence that disturbs me um the fear and the hysteria that is ingrained in people now you're interviewing me in my apartment where i think that i don't have floors there are 10 or 12 floors uh in here you have to wear a mask um indoors so you go to I go with one of my staff yesterday to get in the lift we get in the lift and I'm on floor six and someone lift stops at floor five there are two people out there they look at you and they recoil now I'll wait for the next lift now this is this is after 0.005 percent of the population have died 0.005 percent and this hysteria and fear is ingrained and There is no epidemiological evidence that masks achieve anything very much, but they've become a symbol of this kind of fear. There must be something terrible happening out there because everyone has to wear a mask. And with this have taken all those simple freedoms that you articulated in that essay, just the freedom to protest because you're just worried about your job. I mean, the freedom to associate, the freedom to meet your friends in the park. Well, it's been a... Uh, a campaign, it seems to me, in which they try to enforce compliance to these uh, bureaucratic rules by fear. They, they put the fear of God into people, and that's the way they do it. And, and there was a case, which I mentioned, you, you probably heard about it too, in Britain, where, you know, they actually had 
a team of behavioural psychologists saying you've got to put more fear into people. Absolutely, put more fear into people. And, you know, surely it's axiomatic that if you introduce a piece of public policy and the only way you can implement it is to put police and guns and defence people on the streets, there just might be something wrong with the policy, mightn't there? Absolutely. That's the point of which the politicians would say, no, go away, come back with another idea. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but no, I mean, to, and there are people, as you know, who have come to this country to escape the regime where they woke up in the morning and there were police and armed individuals in the streets. And now this is happening in our country. It is unthinkable. And I mean, the people who died at war for freedom must be rolling in their graves. Uh, these people have got a lot to answer for and they've never been made to answer because we're now a one idea country. You're only allowed one idea. Okay, now the latest region is net zero carbon dioxide emissions. Well, don't disagree with it. That's it. That's it. You can't open your mouth and you'll be vilified. You'll be stoned. They'll chuck bricks at you. Vaccination, another issue. Uh, how we handle the the, the absolutely disproportionate response to coronavirus. No, you can't say this. Mm. Ivermectin, don't mention ivermectin. Don't mention hydroxychloroquine. Well, <laughs> debate has ended. Now, what kind of free society are we where we can't exchange ideas and when someone disagrees with it, we don't have to vilify them? Yeah. We get into the public place. And, for example, I mean, people often talk about the bias on the ABC. And I'm sure they're biased. I'm biased. You're biased. We're all biased. But if that's the case, we'll get out there and argue against it. Yeah. You know, don't whinge about the bias. Go out there and say, bias, just go out there and say, well, look, I'm happy with what you're saying, but I'll tell you what, there is another case. And I mean, I repeat what I've said a million times, and I said it again yesterday. If carbon dioxide, as it is, is 0 0.4, 0 0.04, 0.04% of the atmosphere, that's 0.04% of the atmosphere, 0.04% of the atmosphere, it must be a pretty powerful gas to create all the damage that we're being warned about as a consequence of carbon dioxide. They call it carbon. They don't know the difference between carbon and carbon dioxide. And I can't breathe without carbon dioxide. It, this is it coming out of me here. But you can't have a debate about this. No, that's the point. I mean, people are entitled to disagree with you. Quite, me, absolutely. But, but, and many will. But, and be civilised. But why can we not have these discussions? Why is it deemed that that is now off the table? Mm. But on, on this issue of climate change, do you now concede we've actually lost the argument, Alan? Can we ever win this argument? Or should we now be focusing not on the science, but on how we have a rational energy policy and do everything else that's not going to cost us an arm and a leg and lose jobs? Well, they say, don't they, Nick, let's look at the evidence. Hmm. Now, the poster country for renewable energy is Germany. They're in massive trouble now. The renewable energy hasn't served their purpose and they wonder where the energy is coming from. Right now, as I speak to you, there's an energy crisis in Europe. There's an energy crisis in Britain. They had to actually start up a coal-fired power plant the week before last in order to provide appropriate supplies of energy to people in England. Now they're saying you can have your roast turkey, but you might have to have it in the dark. And this is, so this is, do we look at the evidence? There is the, Spain in a mess, Italy in a mess, Texas in America went berserk on renewable energy, and now they've had to crank up California, crank up coal-fired powers. Now, people don't understand fossil fuels are not just coal. It's coal and gas and, and, um, coal and, gas and oil are fossil fuels. Mm. Now, we are an energy superpower. Yeah. Here we are with trillion dollars of debt, 
Are we going to go to a conference in Glasgow and tell, allow all of these other people over here, these ideological misfits, to tell Australia, you surrender the source of your national wealth? Because right now, the price of coal, thermal coal, has never been higher. The price of metallurgical coal has never been higher. The price of gas has never been higher. And you've got people like Andrew Forrest saying, from his position of billionaire wealth, having made his money out of metals, having made his money out of metals, saying, well, you must surrender all of this for government-subsidised renewable energy. Now, what person, I don't know a world champion in anything that's prepared to surrender his title without a fight. And we, Matt, we've got to be grateful for the Matt Canavans. I'm not saying I'm right, but I'm saying there is another viewpoint. And we're entitled to hear that viewpoint. But now they're trying to intimidate Morrison, who I think on this, his instincts are quite sound. Morrison is saying, I'm not prepared to surrender our economic strength for the sake of some nebulous thing. Then 2050, they'll all be dead in 2050. This is 30 years away. Boris Johnson won't be alive. This like cognitively deficient Joe Biden, they won't be alive. But they're going to impose these burdens upon our 8, 9 and 10 and 11-year-olds, along with the debt which is consequential of surrendering our energy strengths. And someone's got to articulate this in defence, but they're frightened to. I mean, I think what's not... The point that's not articulated enough, you do it, you did it with Morris Newman the other week on Mm -hmm. your show, is, is what's really the big problem here is the international political machinery and process mm. that's built up behind well, it the corporations that are making mm. betting money on this and winning well look it's Just happening morris if we talk about the great reset now what is the great reset it's to stand the economic model on its head and there have been admissions of that by senior people within the united nations and with davos and everywhere so we're not going to continue this kind of economic model and the value system now where do you start Okay, well, I mean, there was a musical made about Ava Perron. Get them while they're young, it said. Get them while they're... It's happening in schools. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you've got young people in schools that can't recite a verse of poetry. They don't... I said to a very bright young fellow, my nephew, who was, my godchild, who was driving me up to the Hunter Valley, I said, just be careful, Hunter. You don't go straight ahead. We've got to turn left up here because you go straight ahead, you'll finish up in Cape York. Hang on. Do you know... Very bright, this kid. Mm. You know where Cape York is? I'm sorry. No, it's not your fault. You haven't been taught. Yeah. They don't know where Gunnadar is. They don't know where, it was Newcastle. We just had it before. It was Newcastle up there or down here. But they know all about this other stuff. Mm. There's plenty of it. And this is the getting the young. This is the reset. Change, well, indoctrinate people. We don't have education. We've got indoctrination. No one's taking a stand against it. And the great irony is that the very thing they think they know something about, science, mm. climate science, mm. they know nothing about, as we've said, over carbon or over the idea that, you know, carbon just doesn't go one way. It's a cycle. It, this has been happening for 500 million years. We've got mm. plants mm. on Earth to absorb carbon mm. and put it in the soil. And, and, and guess what? The coldest We're, year in Antarctica for years and years and years. Now, I thought I heard all these people say that the ice will be melting and we've got a real problem down there. Tim Flannery said it'd never rain again. I mean, these are climate gurus. Are they accountable? I mean, the worst example of this, and I'll be doing something is next week, is the modelling. Now, on the modelling of coronavirus, we were told, you know, there'd be 150,000 people who would die. Now, Christmas, last Christmas, they had what they call the Avalon Cluster down here. We had senior epidemiological people arguing that there'd be thousands dead because you're all going to go to a Christmas party and there'd be the spreaders, you'd be the multipliers, and thousands would die. Well, I think there were 151 cases yeah. and no one died. 
Now, there is a statement today somewhere, we're talking whatever the date is today, which I, I've uh, just unearthed, where the health department now, because you remember, it's about a month ago, Gladys Berejiklian said with all solemnity in one of those annual daily lectures at 11 o'clock that October, October, will be, there'll be unprecedented circumstances confront us in October. Mm. It will be the explosion of cases in October, which is why we've got to be locked out. The health department yesterday admitted that the modelling in relation to October um, has been disproven. Now, how much modelling, how much more modelling has been? All this is on modelling. No one challenges the modelling. You look at that bloke, Niall Ferguson in England. He's been wrong on everything, not just on coronavirus. He was wrong on bird flu. He was wrong on swine. Everywhere you turn, their figures have been exaggerated yeah. to generate fear. Because it's modelling. Modelling. This is science-based modeling. on modelling, and science-based on modelling is not science. Science mm -hmm. is based on evidence. Mm -hmm. And we know this. I mean, Sun's coming out here today. The weather forecast said it will be storms and raining all day. It's a beautiful sunny day. Now, they can't get it right for today, but they're now telling we can get it right for 2050 and 2060. Well, mm. you'd have to be brain dead to believe that. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, just to go back to the forgotten people, as you used to conceptualise them, Struggle Street, you used to have that mm. famous phrase. Mm. And, and it, it all you know, resonated. We knew what you, people you were talking about. People, for instance, in Western Sydney, for instance, in mm. fibro houses, mm. pensioners maybe. I came from Struggle Street. You did, yeah. And, but I, I suppose at those days I, I used to, and I don't, I'm interested in your thoughts, can, I used to think about this in economic terms. These were people who didn't have enough, you know, didn't have, they were struggling to raise a family mm. on a single salary, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, and sure, there, there was a lot of that around, probably more than there is now, but there's still that around. But I think actually, and, and the way you speak about these people these days, it's not, economic is not what defines them. It's just that they're, they're shut off from having a voice. They're being talked down to by people who think they know better. And nowhere more, of course, than in COVID, you know, mm. telling people what to do when they should put a mask on. And they were just not being treated with the respect that every person deserves. No, well, you see, democracy is a great idea, but it doesn't always work. I mean, people basically feel that they're only ever wanted a week before the election, and they're asked to vote, and then they're completely ignored. Uh, where is the mandate for a national cabinet? Where was mm. who, who approved of this? There's no constitutional justification for this. So someone says there'll be a national cabinet. Where is the well, there's been no parliamentary debate on any of these issues in relation to current none, and you can't get a vote, nor can you challenge them, and you're the worst person in the world if you do. So my concept of Struggle Street was, was that, and indeed, if you go back in industrial relations terms, uh, and everyone talks about now on costs. And, and people, a lot of people don't understand the notion of, of on costs, but you employ someone now and you're just convenient sake and you're going to pay them 800 a week, which is say 40,000 a year. So once you pay them the 800, you then have to provide super, the employer has to provide superannuation. He has to provide workers, pay for workers' compensation. He has to make provision for sick leave. He has to make provision for annual leave. And on the annual leave, there's a 17.5% loading on top of the annual leave. So you take your your annual leave salary plus 17.5% because in 1961, when this was introduced, they said, oh, well, it was far too expensive for people to go on holidays, which it was. So it's dearer for them on holidays than it is at home. So we'll add 17.5%. That still stays. Then he has to make provision for uh, 
parental leave, that is leave to give blood to a blood bank, leave to have a baby and so on. By the time he's paid all of that, it's equal to the 400, the, the 800 that he's paying over here. Mm. So the employment of one person, the on costs are almost equal. Mm. Now, that's why I keep saying you can't have, we all should be on the side of the employer. The union should be on, but you can't have a profitable employee if you don't have a profitable employer. Mm. You can only pay wages out of profit. So we, you know, the union should be saying this profit thing is great stuff, so long as there's a fair distribution and there's always an umpire somewhere to whom you can appeal, an industrial umpire, as to whether there are any injustices here. But, you know, Struggle Street is about people who can't, both workers and employers, who can't survive in that environment. Now, the margins are nil. You know, we went out to dinner last night and and there was, the bottle of wine was most probably four times more than you'd buy for it down the grog shop. Mm. But the, the restaurant, they have no margins. No. I mean, th- they've been knocked from pillar to post. And, you know, my parents, I, my parents died without ever having had a holiday. Never had a holiday. But we didn't think we were bad off, badly off. Whereas today, you're poor if you don't have a six-pack in the fridge and you can't have two packets of cigarettes and you haven't got the TV and the video recorder out there and if you can't have all those things, you're poor. So the definition of, of where we are... Has changed, but the reason why you see the political the vote completely disintegrate, don't you, for the major parties? It's completely disintegrated. I mean, at the last election, what Labor got thirty three percent of the vote, the Liberals got thirty seven. I mean, two third. Okay, the Liberals added to the National Party. Two thirds of the nation didn't want either of them. Why? Do these people ever ask that question? And it's because you just abandon them once you get in. Mm. So. You know, you're in power, but there's not any sense of government. So I think I think you, you're coming to the nub of what I guess drives you, Alan. I mean, here you are. Um, you, you are as driven today, it seems to me, as you always were. You, you've just come back with two bionic knees, but you're up and running, you know. I get knocked down, I pick myself up again. But you're, you're on air every night. There's never a night when you're not absolutely 100% passionate. But, you know, looking back over the years... The thing which always seems to energise you is standing up for mm. the, the, the little people. And I don't mean to mm. belittle them by saying that, yes. but you know what I mean. The people yes. who don't get a well, voice. Well, the voice, the people who don't have a voice. And that's why I answer all my correspondence. You do? Every day, all my correspondence. Because when people, when people sit down to write about a grievance, it's got to take a lot of inner unhappiness to vent all of that to someone in the hope that someone will listen. And they write to ministers and it's just a post box that goes to someone else and someone else and there's never any answer. And you just have to fight. But we, we've, had a, we've had a lot of victories on behalf of the little fella. A lot of victories. But you do have to... I am regard myself as in a privileged position. I mean, my parents had nothing. I came from nowhere, but they gave me an opportunity. And I think your obligation is, as you go on and you acquire things, your obligation is to give back and to make sure that you're providing in some small way the opportunity for someone else that you had yourself, rather than this acquisitive business about let's grab it all for my, and you know, we'll have five trips around the world every year. I'm not into that, and I'm not really much into holidays and all that sort of stuff. I'm happy working, and I think I'd be gone if I didn't work, because I think you need that kind of intellectual rigour. But at the same time, there's got to be a cause greater than yourself. And when people start whinging about, oh, I I had someone yesterday, they were crying, that you know, sore hand or some damn thing. I said, listen, settle down, settle down. They're getting shot in Kabul. And you've got a job. Mm. 
you know, let's get, let's get some perspective here, and we tend to lack that. And I think we've got to encourage young people not to be acquisitive, not to grab it all for yourself. You know, sharing is, is a wonderful thing to do, but people don't ever try it. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a lovely, pl- lovely apartment at, um, on the Gold Coast. I only sold it because someone offered me some reasonable money. But however, I lent it out to the Australian swimming team before they wanted to have a party there before one of the Commonwealth Games or something. And I just went in to see that everything was okay. And a, a swimmer whom you know, everyone knows, one of the great swimmers of the world, said, oh, this is amazing. Isn't this fantastic? And there's some marble here and whatever. I said, let me tell you something. If you were here on your own, it would be a prison. It's only a beautiful place when you share. And that's, that's the lesson to learn. Share. Be out there to give something back. And it's a privilege if you can. Most, most people would feel that they'd like to be able to do that, but they can't. And I think the obligation is if you have that capacity, you're obligated, in my view, to do it. Give something back. Now, you can do that intellectually. You, you know, If you've got the intellectual quotient to be able to articulate causes and concerns, you're giving that back. You're sharing that with people. And they think, gee, I didn't think about that, but I'm a bit smarter, which is the aim of the, TV, of the program, radio and TV. Do I know a bit more when Alan Jones is finished than I did when I started? And yes, yeah. we're biased. We're certainly biased. I'm not saying that my view is the preeminent view, but I'm happy to get into the ring with anybody to debate those views. But so it's this notion of giving and giving, which is what Menzies articulated, you know, in that, in that magnificent speech. That's what he talked about. Mm. But we've lost our way here. Two questions about going old, growing old, mm. and then I'm done. Um, the first one is, it seems to me, and I feel this too, I mean, I'm just in my early 60s, but I feel this sense that um, I don't, owe anything to people any in the sense that I, I I don't have to think about what do I have to do to climb the next rung, the next rung, the next rung, right? I've 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 had a successful life, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And that I think frees you up a bit. You feel less hmm. obliged to you know, and, and in, in your business it must mean that you can you, you've always spoken without fear or favour, but now you can really speak without fear or favour. Yes, look, I think age is a very interesting thing. I never know how old anyone is, and I'm not interested. I mean, it's it's a state of mind age, and that's why I'm totally opposed to early retirement, because what do people then do? I mean, there's only a limited number of games of golf you can have or number of times you can so I don't know. I don't know what people do, and I think that when you don't have that intellectual rigour, I mean, the, the most important muscle in your body is your brain. Now, if you start giving the brain a rest, it'll start to believe it's entitled to the rest. It won't work for you. And what kind of person are you? So I, I don't think it, that, that age has anything to do with the chronology of where you are. It's how you feel about things and whether you can continue to think and believe and influence and persuade and share and enjoy that's it. And if that's the case, well, we're all 21. Mm. I don't feel any different from, at all, apart from a few replacements and a bit of magnesium, one or two cancers and so on, but I don't feel any different from the way I think I felt when I was 21. Um, yeah. Because it's, the, you know, it's an, and that's what I try to encourage people to do, take that attitude. It's attitude, isn't it? And I think if, if there's any change that's needed in this country, it's attitudinal change. Attitudinal change. Got roll your sleeves up. Get out there. Lose some sweat and be independent. Amenzi's again made this point. Stop relying on the wealth of other people. And he said that in the Forgotten People's speech. And there are too many people who think that we, they are owed a living by someone else. Now stop putting your hand in someone else's pocket. 
And I think if we had that attitudinal change, we don't have any problems at all. It's up to you, really. You're the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the architect of your own salvation. That's right. That's right. We have to keep reminding people mm. of that, mm. young people in yeah. particular. You, you, you started your life in teaching. You've obviously always had a passion for for. I think education. I've always been a teacher. I mean, I, I'm teaching now, not in the same way, not in that didactic way, but at the same time, whether it was rugby or whatever, you were, you were teaching. That's sharing knowledge. That's what it's about. But what we don't have in education now is the inculcation into young people so that they've got this thirst for learning, this excitement as I go into the classroom, what am I going to learn today? Because they don't learn anything. We've lost all of that. And I think, you you know, we've got to encourage young people, read the books, know some poems. Which poem did you read today? Can you recite me a poem? It's exciting to know a poem. But we've got to encourage that enthusiasm and excitement mm. in the classroom. Unfortunately, we've lost it. But, And that's, look, Nick, we've only got one crisis, and I wrote about this in that splendid volume. Where is the copy of it over here? Yeah. Where there's a copy Excellent of it. book. Australia Tomorrow. Australia we should, tomorrow. We should give it yes. another plug. It, 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 well, it deserves a plug. It does. It's a because these book. are ideas. And my chapter, if I give myself a plug, and I look inside and I'll tell you what the title of my chapter is, and it says, wherever I am, um, and it, yeah, who we are? Alan Jones. The Crisis in Western Political Leadership. Now, Milton in Lycidas said, the hungry sheep look up and are not fed. The hungry sheep, are what, the forgotten people, the ones you were talking about, they're looking up and there's no nutrition coming from political leadership today. That's why Perrottet just struck a note a week ago when he said, you know, this is my philosophy about things, and it pits, ca captures people's imagination. Mm. He's, he's become a 39 years of age, a real leader. The hungry sheep look up and are not fed. Where is the nutrition from political leadership? Well, I always like to end on a redemptive note. Yes, redemption. <laughs> so, but we have a we have a very strong cohort of, of good young politicians coming up through the system, don't we? Mm. Senator Jane Patterson, Amanda mm. Stoker. Mm. Um, I won't pick indiv out individuals because there's so many of them. I guess the trick is to stop them getting jaded. Stop them falling into the, you know, into the machinery of politics and think more about the. Well, there are, your, there are two dilemmas here. Um, a good leader, in politics, sport, wherever you are, wants to gather around him or her people of real ability. They're threatened by ability. One of the problems with the people you're talking about, and in both political parties, there is real talent. But are we going to promote them because they represent a threat or do we operate with those people with whom we feel safe? And you find that they come in, they've got ambition, they've got ideas, and they just relegated and they're never, ever given that opportunity. That's true right now of the Liberal Party. It's true of the Labor Party. And until we get leadership, which is not uncomfortable with having real talent around it, because talent challenges you. I mean, you're, you're a smart man. You and I get into the room together. We're not going to agree. That's healthy. And we learn from that disagreement. Now, all this Me Tooism around the cabinet table doesn't get you anywhere at all, particularly in difficult times like now. So my concern is, yes, but how do you encourage? How I had some people on the veranda here, and they were very, very talented, very talented politicians, federal. None of them were in the ministry. None. 
And I'm thinking to myself, how do I encourage young people to go into politics when that kind of talent remains unacknowledged and unrewarded? Whereas I think leadership should say, listen, you do well, you be good, and you will get in the team, I'm telling you. Hey. How do we crack this one, Alan? How do I mean, you crack it? We, we've sat here, we, we, you've talked about you know promising young people like Angus Taylor. I mean, mm. he's the wrong side of 50. Mm. Very young man that's in it. his thinking. Peter Costello was treasurer at 37. Mm. So that's not happening, is it? No. Is it just that some of the old people are staying around a bit too long or trying to cling to this where they should be yes, mentoring think, the next generation? Well, I think the factions in both parties limit the capacity of gifted and talented people to make the grade. In other words, we're not judging people on merit. We're judging people on to enter Parliament on the extent to which they will grow the influence that exists in this particular faction. So get that person not part of my faction. I want numbers here so I can control things. And it's become... And Tony's talked about this. Tony Abbott will have... Abbott's classic, isn't he? Mm. One of the great minds, mm. and that they conspired against him from the moment he got there. And now the world treats Abbott, you know, as a, as a visionary, but you're never a prophet in your own country, are you? No. So um, until we can get a circumstance where merit prevails and merit doesn't prevail. I mean, for example, we've just had... You know, we have all this hoopla and rhetoric about women in politics. Oh, yes, and we must have women in political leadership. That's very... Oh, yes, we all agree with that. So a very talented woman, Conchetta Fiorenti Wells, offers herself for the presidency of the Senate. What happened? Doesn't get a look in. Doesn't get a look in. We then come to New South Wales and Barilaro resigns from the leadership. A woman who's been in the parliament for almost 20 years, Mel Pavey, who's known all around New South Wales. And she's got a presence. She's like a sort of a, everybody's avuncular friend and can speak beautifully, gets on the stump, can talk. No, no three votes. Mm. Three votes. See, we're not fair income. No. That's my concern. How do we reinstate in anything promotion on the basis of merit? And that's true of rugby teams, it's true of political teams, it's true of the corporate world. How do we do it? And that's our crisis, and it's got to be addressed because we're losing good people. Well, uh, we're not going to get redemption out of politics, clearly, so let's just wind up on... <laughs> let's just return to rugby. Yes. Uh, and, and let me ask you a question. Uh, early days yet, but mm. is, it is it just possible, Alan, that the Wallabies may have discovered a better coach than Alan Jones? No, I don't think that's true. Uh, <laughs> modesty, modesty allows me to say that. No, no, no. Before you're, a, you've got to be a good selector before you're a good coach. And this Wallaby team were in Wallaby team was in real trouble. The new fellow was picking the wrong people. Now, I would like to think, immodestly, I might have had some role in this. I have been a long advocate of the creative skills of Quade Cooper. Uh, you can't constrain those skills, so sometimes he'll get you into trouble, but he'll get you out of trouble more often than he gets you into trouble. Now, to be, the credit I give to the coach is he then chose to pick Quade Cooper. He then chose to pick James O'Connor, and suddenly the excitement of playing with the football overcame the turgid stuff about you know pick and drive, pick and drive, pick and drive. So the defeat by New Zealand in those Bledisloe Cup matches has really served Australia well. Dave Rennie changed his approach towards selection. Quade's gone in there, and I think now we've got the nucleus of a fairly formidable side. The other part of it was we had this stupid Giddo's law. 
where people playing overseas couldn't be picked for Australia. Now, I have argued all along, a selector's job is to pick the very best team no matter where they live or where they're playing. Again, they're doing that now. So Rennie's now got this injection of people who previously, until now, had been disqualified from being chosen for Australia. So we've always had the talent. Now, if he can mobilise that talent, yeah, I think we can beat anyone. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for your time. You're most welcome. Your wisdom. Most welcome. Thank you, Nick. Bye.